The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Great, great to, good to uh, see you. Yes, great to be back after two, week, two <coughs> weeks off, Father, uh, mm -hmm. as you were in Rome. For, yes, uh, yes. I took a... Yeah. Group, a total of 39 people, including myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, about three quarters, three quarters of them under 25 years or so of age. Yeah. So it was an energetic group, Good. shall we say. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, we would certainly um, love to hear more about the trip, Father, and uh, hear some of your reflections on, on, the, uh, on the trip. But before we get into that, did you have any prayer requests that you wanted to... Uh, begin the program with tonight? Well, as always, uh, yeah, I ask ongoing prayers for Paul Riley. Family Paul is recovering, uh, we pray, from a catastrophic brain injury suffered in an auto accident. Uh, he was helping a stranded motorist at the time when he was struck by, a, uh, I guess, a, a pickup truck. And um, the, also, uh, Tom Wright is, uh, we pray, recovering. I understand just today that he is in a, down a step-down unit from intensive care. Thank goodness for that. That's real progress. And, of course, uh, we have Donna and uh, Joe and uh, a goodly number of other dear souls who are suffering with uh, serious illness. Uh, Cliff, we just found out, is undergoing some uh, tests for cancer. And so uh, we always have these prayer requests come our way because people know that we pray. And uh, so I think that's the ultimate compliment of what people ask us to pray is we are asking our viewers to pray because we have such confidence in them that they, they, uh, they will pray and, uh, for these, these requests. And uh, God will bless those they're praying for, and God will bless them for praying for them, too. Good, good. Well, thank you, Father. Um, getting, getting back to, the, uh, to the, the Rome trip, you know, I, I know our, our viewers are very curious to, uh, to hear about it. We were unable the last two weeks to do a program since you were there in Rome uh, with, I believe, the junior and senior class here. From, uh, <clears throat> That's right. They were the core group. It was actually their class trip. Mm -hmm. And others signed on when they heard about it, and uh, we're glad they did. It added a you know, multi-dimensional <laughs> multi uh, aspect to the group. Um, I was blessed to do the single most important part of the trip, and that is visit the excavations under St. Peter's, the Scavi, so-called, in the Decropolis, uh, with uh, our students, with our students in the um, uh, senior class and junior class. So uh, during that one event, I, uh, I was able to join them as a, a unique group in going to the very burial spot of St. Peter where on June 29th, in the year 67 AD, his, uh, his body was taken down from the cross where he'd been crucified upside down and carried off and hastily buried. Uh, that spot became a, uh, a destination of pilgrimage for just the, the, the decades and centuries afterwards, throughout the time of persecution. And... Uh, Finally, it was over that spot that Constantine erected the first St. Peter's Basilica as a monument to his martyrdom and his faith. And uh, we see now what is the second of the basilicas built there. The, uh, the original Basilica of Constantine uh, lasted from about the year 330 or so to the year uh, 1504, when it was decided that the basilica had to be rebuilt, and they did in sections from 1504 all the way to 1626. What we see now is the basilica completed in 1626. 
<clears throat> that's the modern day St. Peter's. Okay. Still, the high altar is directly over the burial site of St. Peter's and where the remains of uh, St. Peter's bones are, are kept onto the Clementine altar there, uh, which is under the high altar of the basilica itself. <laughs> Father, this, this um, trip that, that you and the, um, the students and some of the, the chaperones went on, was this, was this trip actually classified as a pilgrimage? Was this actually a pilgrimage? It was. Well, it, it has uh, become the student class trip each year, but we make it a pilgrimage. And uh, <clears throat> what, you know, what, what classifies it as a pilgrimage, it, it is actually a time of prayer. We go over there primarily to pray. And, um, you know, when, when people walk into these great basilicas, their first inclination is to whip out the cameras and start going around and taking pictures. You know? uh, but I think we've got everyone pretty well trained that the first thing we do is not pull out the cameras, but we pull out the rosaries. And so we'll go up to the traditional altars that still remain there, now abandoned pretty much, but nonetheless... Uh, still adorned, um, and uh, we just disregard the tables that have been put in their place uh, in front of them, and we, we pray the rosary before the relics of the martyrs who are, who are there. Uh, every church we go into, the first thing we do is we go up to pray a decade, at least one decade of the rosary. Mm -hmm. uh, we offer that as an announce for our uh, loved ones, here back home for all of our benefactors and those in special need. For example, Paul and Tom and others uh, who need, need our prayers in a particular way. So, um, you know, when, when you look at the list of the churches we visit, uh, you see that that adds up to quite, quite a lot of praying. And, um, but also, I personally spend the time there, and I know at least one other of our pilgrims does spend the time praying the divine office, <clears throat> divine office in these chapels too, in mm -hmm. these churches. So um, the, our primary mission there is to uh, express our faith in our Lord, our, our hope in Him, and our love for Him in our prayer. And uh, I think the students uh, uh, find that very edifying, and they, they're very mindful of the fact that that is their primary purpose of being there. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it a pilgrimage. Father, what, uh, what, what did the daily itinerary look like? Were you able to offer Mass every day over there? And if so, was, where? The, uh, we, I take a Mass kit with me. In the past, I have uh, ventured to offer Mass in the catacombs at the Mamertine prison where St. Peter and St. Paul were held before their martyrdom. And that's permitted? And, uh, well, at the time, it was officially not permitted but uh, they were rather lax about it, shall we say. Now I'm sure they're very stringent. And uh, I would not venture to do that now. The reason being is because um, uh, I, I've just heard of incidents where priests were trying to offer the traditional Mass in churches that were built for that very purpose. And a, a, a Novus Novo Ordo sacristan or someone would intervene, interrupt the, the Mass, and uh, create a disturbance, even uh, try to prevent the, the Mass from even being completed. I can't subject our Lord to that. Barbarism. It's worse than barbarism. But that's what the Novus Ordo is. And modern, that's what modernism is, right? Uh, the synthesis, synthesis of all heresies. And it manifests itself in a, a certain contempt, even a, a hatred for the traditional Mass, the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, which the new Mass is not. And so um, I, I think it would be wrong to risk that uh, abuse of the Blessed Sacrament and scandal to the, especially the young people of uh, the Novus Ordo, you know, uh, just perfidy. Um, so I take a mass kit, and we have a, a room in the in the uh, place where we're staying, which is dedicated to you know the use for the mass, and uh, that's what we do offer the mass there, okay. without fear of uh, the uh, 
you know, uh, the, the modernist uh, troops uh, or uh, uh, stormtroopers, you know, bursting in, <laughs> trying to prevent it from happening. So, mm. but anyway, that's uh, it, it takes a bit of effort. It takes more effort that way, but I think it's the right thing to do. And the students sing and sing beautifully at the mass too. Uh, even though it's often it, it's at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, so, in, in any case, um, that's how the day starts. And then they go for breakfast, and it's a good breakfast, but a quick one. Fortunately, it would be so much uh, more relaxing to be able to linger over breakfast, but we're there on a mission, you know. <clears throat> so, uh, we forego the luxury of a leisurely breakfast to get out the door. There were um, three days of our trip. Actually, we left the United States on April 11th, which was the Tuesday after Easter, and arrived in Rome at uh, Leonardo da Vinci, or Fiumicino as they call it, <clears throat> at um, uh, about mid-morning, uh, mid-morning the next day, okay, April 12th. Uh, and uh, we were picked up by a motor coach. That helps a lot. When you've got a group of 39 people, it helps a great deal. <clears throat> and uh, got to the hotel and um, then uh, got checked in. Um, and um, then we um, set out immediately to uh, get some lunch and uh, to go visit St. Mary Major Basilica. The hotel we're staying at, the, the Monte Palace, called Monte, because that's the ragione, that's the, uh, the area of Rome, the region of Rome in which the, the uh, hotel is. And it was a palace, actually, at one time. And uh, it's a very nice hotel, operated uh, by a very fine gentleman, uh, whom we've come to know and appreciate very much, actually. A very good friendship with. But the hotel is basically midway between St. Mary Major to the north, St. Mary Major Basilica, and uh, the Colosseum to the south, along the Via Cavour. And so uh, it's pretty well located. So we, we went to St. Mary Major. That was the first site we saw. And of course, we went in and we uh, were greeted by the beautiful site of... Uh, a basilica dedicated to our Blessed Lady, um, with its rich history going back to the late 300s, when there was a miraculous fall of snow in August, August 5th. Um, as anybody who's been in Rome during the summer, it is torrid for there to be a fall of snow covering the, the, the top of the Esquiline Hill um, in August uh, would truly be miraculous. But uh, both the pontiff at the time and the uh, the couple who were praying to God to know what to do with their resources, they had no children, and they they didn't know they wanted to know what they should do with the ample resources that God had given them, and they were shown to build a uh, shrine to Our Lady there. It wasn't the first wasn't the first shrine to Our Lady, um, but. It was uh, to be the greatest of them all, now known as St. Mary Major. And uh, it grew uh, from that probably very humble beginning um, to what it is right now. The, the ceiling actually is a little bit of home. It was uh, gilded with the first gold brought by Columbus back from the New World, used to adorn the ceiling uh, of that basilica dedicated to the motherhood of Mary, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, in the um, confessional, um, up front, in front of the main altar, um, you have the pieces of the crib, the manger of our Lord, brought from St. Jerome back from Palestine, from, from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem, I should say, <clears throat> and enshrined there in a, in a beautiful silver cask. And um, we also have the, the body of St. Pius V is buried there. In the Sixteen Chapel, off to the right on the Epistle side, and the uh, sarcophagus was open, <coughs> revealing the, uh, you know, the, 
the interior of the coffin where they have a, an effigy of St. Pius, the, his remains underneath a mm. kind of a bronze effigy of him and lying in state, as it were. So we were very fortunate to see that. Um, in the past, often I've seen the, the chapel itself closed by the Iron Gate. But not only was that open, but the sarcophagus of Pius V was open too. So we're very happy to see that. He's our patron, of course. <clears throat> and uh, there are many other things about St. Mary Major which are very endearing. And, uh, and uh, the miraculous picture of Our Lady in the... Uh, in the chapel to the uh, on the gospel side, of course, is uh, very very noteworthy. Um, so, but that was the first place. That's where we started, mm -hmm. and uh, the appro very appropriate place for us to start. Yeah. We went from there to um, the Church of uh, Santa Praxedes, uh, Santa uh, Santa Praxedes, as they say in Italian, and uh, and that was her her home. As a, as a married woman, she, um, she um, and her sister Prudenziana were the grandchildren of the emperor, of, of, I'm sorry, the senator Pudens, who welcomed St. Peter into his home. And uh, so not far from the church of uh, Santa Persedes, you have in the Via Urbana, the, the ancestral home of both girls, um, the, the home going back to Senator Pudens, where St. Peter himself walked and preached and even offered Mass. They have part of the altar that he used there. The other part of that altar is now in, with Kenton Case within the altar of St. John Lateran Basilica. Uh, but they have, uh, in many areas, parts of the, of the ancient pavement. <clears throat> um, and, I mean, it was St. Peter himself who, who trod that very pavement. Um, so, so much did Senator Pudens welcome St. Peter and so much did he revere him that he actually had a chair made symbolizing his apostolic authority, which came to be known as the Cerulean chair because it was inset with blue stones and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, that chair itself now is, is, uh, behind the high altar at St. Peter's Basilica encased within the huge bronze heroic uh, throne of St. Peter, uh, supported by the four doctors and brothers of the church, the Cerulean Church of St. Peter from the that uh, time of his preaching in the time of uh, Pudens is contained within that, at bronze. Uh, today's feast day actually has a great relation to, to that because <clears throat> today's feast day is the feast day of St. Mark the Evangelist. And when Peter preached at the home of, uh, of the senator Pudens, in the great hall of that home, it was St. Mark who actually was recording his words. Um, and that is what has become known as the Gospel according to St. Mark. They're the, the words as written by St. Mark, but um, as spoken by St. Peter. And if you read the, uh, the lessons of the Mass, of the um, Matins today, it uh, speaks of that, the fact that St. Mark uh, was actually re requested to record the words of St. Peter by some of the faithful uh, who, who attended there. And uh, that St. Mark did so with St. Peter's approval and then uh, gave St. Peter the result of his work and St. Peter personally approved it. And that, therefore, we know as the Gospel according to St. Mark, according to one of the ancient uh, writers of the church, Papias, is actually the gospel according to St. Peter. Um, so we visited the, uh, the great basilica of St. Uh, the basilica, I think it's a minor basilica, I forget, I'd have to go back and check, of Santa Praxedes and also her sister Santa Prudenciana. Um, and uh, that, that's basically how we began our, our tour. And uh, we're very happy with that. Three days we actually had buses pick up us, pick us up fairly early. Again, motor coaches came to uh, take us to Florence. Um, that was an entire day. Uh, I accompanied them on that on that journey. Um, it was a welcome relief because it was a rainy Rome, mm -hmm. 
I think it rained every day but one. It didn't rain all day necessarily, but there were there were time periods of rain. I think in all but one day. Okay. This was the rainiest pilgrimage we've had. <laughs> Never heard one word of complaint. Um, but uh, we got to Florence and it was sunny until the last hour before we had to leave, and then it started pouring. <laughs> so the rain the rain followed us up there. But it was a beautiful day in Florence. Um, and then we also spent a day <clears throat> in a motor coach going to Assisi and Bagno Reggio, Civita di Bagno Reggio. Um, uh, most of that day, I think, was spent in Assisi. And I did not go because a couple of the youngsters were ill and I didn't want to leave them behind. <clears throat> so I, I thought I'd better stay. Besides, I'd been to Assisi. I'd love to go again. But uh, it seemed that uh, the needs of the uh, pilgrim, the uh, young pilgrims needed some that, at least that attention. So uh, in any case, but those who did go to Assisi and to Bagnoregio had generally positive reports about it. Um, Assisi is so tranquil compared to Rome. Rome is the hustle and bustle of a big city like New York. Florence somewhat less so, although it too was swarming with tourists. Um, but you don't have the, the, tr the mad traffic that you have in Rome. And, uh, and Assisi is very tranquil, even compared to Florence. So um, uh, I missed that. Um, but then there was a third day um, when we, we went to the catacombs. Actually, the, I think the second day we were there, Motorcoast took us to the catacombs of uh, Domatilla and Sebastiano, uh, St. Sebastian and St. Domatilla, and St. Paul's outside the walls, Archbasilica, which was, uh, it's always breathtaking. No matter how many times you go into the church, uh, St. Paul's outside the walls, it's to the south of the city, outside the walls, it is, as it says, uh, it is simply breathtaking to go into that. And uh, there you have the remains of St. Paul himself with St. Timothy, his beloved uh, young British bishop, <laughs> Timothy. And um, the, uh, the children sang there. Actually, the, the, first, the first church in which they sang, because they had been uh, practicing, this is the, the choir, mm -hmm. talking about the 12th graders, the 11th graders, uh, the first church with the same was St. Praxedes. Uh, and um, at first I think they were rather timid because the acoustics were unlike anything they'd heard before. Yeah. I think it, it just kind of, uh, as soon as they opened their mouth, the sound came out and filled the, uh, the church. I, I think it kind of startled them. Uh, but after that, they became more accustomed to it. And so they sang in multiple churches and it was very beautiful. Our intrepid uh, uh, technological advisor and guide here has posted much of this to the in, uh, to the What Catholics Believe website and can be followed there. Um, and it's going to appear also on our, our Vatican Conception Academy website very soon too. So people can go on there and judge for themselves how it sounded, but uh, um, I thought it sounded very beautiful. Father, one, one question I have. What, uh, what is it like as a traditional Catholic visiting some of these, uh, some of these churches? Um, I know on uh, Holy Thursday uh, this year here at Immaculate Conception, you gave a very beautiful sermon where you talked about the, the Blessed Sacrament and the real presence, and you mentioned how empty churches feel um, if for some reason the Blessed Sacrament is, is removed. And... Um, you know, all, the, all of these these amazing uh, churches, basilicas that you're describing, you know, are in the, the hands of the, the modernist. And so we would uh, say, uh, or at least seriously question the, uh, the the real presence there. And so what I imagine it must be some some ways bittersweet going into some of these um, churches. Uh, did, what, is, what is it like? Could you describe that at all as a traditional Catholic? I'd say bittersweet is a good way to put it. Huh? It's... Uh, it's, uh, there's a certain sadness that accompanies the elation of seeing these beautiful things that were built for the glory of God, the worship of, uh, of God 
uh, our Lord personally in the Blessed Sacrament. These, these places of worship were built for him. And um, to be, as it were, Emmanuel, God with us. And um, when we walk in and we see how they are so profane to know, it certainly does hurt, you know. Uh, kind of like a dagger in the heart, in a, say, in a way, you know, for, for quite some time now, um, these great churches have had Blessed Sacrament chapels uh, dedicated for the res reservation of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and this was necessary because of all of the visitors who came, uh, tourists who came and wandered without any uh, awareness or belief in the Blessed Sacrament and therefore didn't show the reverence necessary. And so to protect the Blessed Sacrament from profanation, uh, it was kept at a, a, side, a side chapel for adoration. That's not to be confused with the Novus Ordo practice of taking the, the, uh, the host from the tabernacle and putting it off at a side um, again, because uh, you know, in the in the in the great traditional churches of Rome, back back in the day, this was to protect the Blessed Sacrament from profanation. Unfortunately, the Novus Ordo itself is a profanation of the Blessed Sacrament, and that is why they take it and they put it on the side because they consider it to be basically in the way of, uh, and that's not the focal point of their liturgy. Um, so they basically put it there, sometimes in a glorified broom, broom closet, you know. Uh, um, and they profane it that way. I mean, that's for those who believe that the Novus Ordo is even valid. You know, they're... Um, uh, but anyway, that's another question. Uh, regardless, uh, you know, when they, when they're, if they really believe that the hosts that they're handing out are truly the body and blood of Christ, how could they, how could they justify handing these hosts out to people, particles of the host falling with no concern, people trampling all over them? If they really believed themselves that it was the Blessed Sacrament, how could they possibly even tolerate that? So uh, in any case, um, but as I say, that's another question for another day. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's... As one of the students pointed out, actually, and uh, also Shapuran too, it's such a such a terrible shame, even like a crime, because you get literally hundreds of thousands of people coming from all over the world. Uh, you know, whether they be Muslims or Buddhists or Shinto or um, Orthodox or atheists or whoever, they come to those to Rome, uh, they see these churches. They come to St. Peter's Basilica, and they're quite astounded by what they see, the beauty and the grandeur of it. What an opportunity it would be to impress upon them, not only the beauty and the grandeur of the building, but the beauty and grandeur of the faith that inspired it, the beauty and grandeur of the presence the divine presence of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. What an opportunity to quote-unquote evangelize these people and show them where the true faith is. Imagine if those who, who had control over these sacred places really used these in a sacred way, not just as tourist attractions, but actually as opportunities to, to spread the faith, to engender the faith in, our, our, in our, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and the love for the one true God of the Blessed Trinity in those who came. What a, what a tremendous work that would be. The greatest work of apologetics and so-called evangelization, and that's a Catholic word, I mean, in, English, in Latin, that goes back. Uh, it's been co-opted by others, uh, but it is very much a Catholic, Catholic word with a Catholic meaning. Imagine what could be accomplished then. But so many of the people come and they just wander around and they have no clue as to what they're seeing or what they're hearing, uh, no appreciation for it, for what it really is. I mean, uh, you know, you get these tourists are wandering through, you know, hey, this place is really big, big, big. Wow, you know, they're, 
they're just impressed by all of the material, worldly things about it. But the spiritual significance is completely lost on them. That's a tragedy. That is a major failure. Huge failure. And so I, I noticed with, uh, well, at least in my case, I know I t always try to take the opportunity when I'm asked to explain what people are looking at. And I get stopped um, um, from time to time as I'm walking through St. Peter or just around Rome. People stop and ask questions you know, about, uh, for example, uh, the very last night we were there, um, I was slowly making my way back from uh, San Agnese in Agone uh, uh, of the Piazza Navona to the hotel. And uh, there I, I had a couple just pass me as I was going up the steps of the Quirinale. And uh, this fellow just intercepted me, he and his wife, and uh, were asking, why does it say the name of Pope Pius the... Who was it? I guess it was Paul the Fourth or Fifth. Why does it have the name Pius the, Paul the Fourth engraved on the front of the building when actually it's the national government uh, headquarters? You know, and uh, so I, I had had the opportunity there to explain a bit of the history uh, of Vatican One and and the, the Masons, uh, the Masonic troops of mercenaries led by Garibaldi seizing the property and taking it from the Pope. And, and I was glad for the opportunity to actually explain that. And uh, I could tell it was something entirely new. Those who were there, they had no concept of this happening. Uh, so I hope it engendered some interest in, the, in their minds. But I mean, for that one opportunity, there'd be a thousand others, other opportunities. And for people who would take the opportunity, uh, take the time, and the interest, and I can't help but think what a what an army of not tour guides, but actual missionaries in Rome could do for those who came there, uh, uh, maybe looking for a vacation and uh, and uh, you know some maybe artistic fix, and leaving with uh, faith, you know at least the beginnings of faith in their hearts. So that, that hurts to see. It hurts to see the sacred places profaned. When I say profaned, I don't mean just by the, by the unknowing tourists. I mean by uh, the, the clergy and the prelates there who basically have um, turned them into a shop, you know, big shop. Uh, that's what hurts so much and uh, has made the, the, the seat of the new order, which is a you know, the, the globalist religion in, in the making. It's like the embryo there of the globalist one world religion being formed there. Mm -hmm. uh, when you walk into the churches such as, uh, well, I, I won't name this necessarily, but when you walk into the churches there, you see uh, basically the uh, the marks of this beast of the new order religion um, um, and, and touting all of these synodal, uh, synodal uh, what should I say, fantasies of Francis and so on. Um, and so, yes, that, that is very sad. I, I want our students, well, I want all of our pilgrims, uh, whether they be 17 years old in high school juniors, or whether they be 70-year-old, uh, uh, you know, pilgrims going um, out of a sense of devotion. I want them to be able to look beyond all that, to see Catholic Rome. I want them to see into the catacombs and in the basilicas, and uh, I want them to see, you know, in, in, in the Mamertine prison and so many other um, holy sites there. I want to see the, the real roots of the Catholic faith. Um, they need these memories. They need to, to see this. Because in Rome, you can see the, basically the history of the church from, uh, from the chains of St. Peter, uh, from the floor of the, of the hall of Pudens's, um uh, you know, reception room in his, in, his, in his great home, 
all the way to um, uh, and the Mamertine prison from the very roots of the faith there when Peter preached the faith and died for the faith there and St. Paul all the way to the present day you know it's all there it's all there right in front of you and uh, in a matter of um, a few days you can actually trace the history of the church from uh, the times of its uh, persecution under the Roman emperors um, right through the time of the great basilicas, the time of triumph. And um, uh, but one, of the, one of the first churches we visited actually was uh, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, uh, which was largely uh, accomplished through the fundraising efforts of St. John Bosco. It was in that church that St. John Bosco was offering Mass at one of the side altars when he had the vision of the future that brought him to, brought him to tears. Right. And um, <clears throat> I think the students found that very interesting. It was one of the first churches we got to see. And it was, I would say, quasi-miraculous that we got in to see it <laughs> because it was closed. And uh, we were standing outside and lamenting the fact that it was the doors were shut and locked against us. <clears throat> but I guess we'd arrived a few minutes after hours. <clears throat> And as we were there, kind of puzzling, what, what do we do now? Um, <clears throat> lo and behold, one of the students went up and, and knocked on the door. <clears throat> and lo and behold, as he walked away, the door opened. And uh, someone was being led out of the basilica by one of the attendants there. And when he saw us, he, he let us all in. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> But uh, we were able to come in, and basically it was just ourselves in the basilica. And uh, the students were able to sing there, too, come to think of it. So, um, but, you know, that, that ties us together with even St. John Bosco's vision of the future. Um, so, in, in any case, I could go on and on about, uh, mm -hmm. about just the impact that Rome has or should have you know, there, there are those who have been to Rome with us who um, have seemingly not benefited greatly from by it. But I know the time will come when they will have memories, and those memories will serve them well. When God will, uh, as it were, resurrect those memories that might have been buried deeply in their past. And uh, there are times when those memories will serve their faith. Yeah. But if you talk to the students uh, who went, not only students, but others, I think they'll tell you that uh, it, it did um, make their faith really come alive. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's... So one of these days, maybe you should go. I plan on it, Father. <laughs> um, well, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for all of your... Well, I like to think our, our youngsters are edifying. Uh, you know, Tom, if, I'm, if I may uh, expatiate a little bit more. And, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to expatiate, you know that. Right. Yes, Father. <laughs> uh, the single most important thing to do in Rome, uh, such that if you simply booked a flight, flew there, did this, and came back, and did nothing else, it would be more than worth it. Would be making the tour of the excavations uh, through the the floor of the current Saint Peter Basilica to through through the Constantinian Basilica beneath it. And through the pavement there, right to the level of the Vatican Hill, 2,000 years, years ago, when St. Peter was buried, because the tour actually takes you there. And they have art historians, or they have archaeologists, or they have other professional people who, who actually lead those tours. <laughs> there are only 300 people allowed down there per week in groups of 12. We've had 15, but no more than 15. Um, and what they, what they do, um, I've been down about a dozen times myself uh, over the years, and it never gets old. Uh, even though you're going back 2,000 years, it never gets old. Um, they actually retrace the steps of the archaeologist as they followed the path mapped out by the ancient documents and traditional uh, teachings of the church about about what was underneath the basilica, uh, what was on the Vatican Hill 2,000 years ago. 
they retrace the steps of the archaeologists as they they dig out uh, not just shovelful by shovelful, but sometimes teaspoonful by teaspoonful of dirt, of soil, to uncover what was there. And uh, they they lead you to the archaeologists' um, decisions. They they lead you through their all of their efforts, what they uncovered, step by step. They take you to the red wall uh, <coughs> that actually delineated the line of St. Peter's tomb burial spot from the pagan uh, burial buildings, the mausolea, <coughs> lower on Saint, the uh, Vatican Hill. Uh, they, they actually take you around that red wall and underground and um, to the very spot where there stood the the uh, trophy of Gaius, a priest of the mid-2nd uh, century, who wrote of this, his visit to the, to the remains of St. Peter. And uh, then they, they talk about the researchers that went into it and, and discovering the actual remains of St. Peter. At that point, our guide, Julia, uh, mentioned to us, as is, I think, uh, pretty much universal, uh, that we could pray. And... Uh, frankly, the guides do not often betray their own faith. They're there uh, as historians, as art, art restorationists, as uh, archaeologists, you know, and they, they come across that way. <clears throat> um, so, you know, I, I had no idea of Julia and her faith or devotion or anything of the kind. She was very, I would say, amiable but professional, and um, didn't really betray any, any of her personal inclinations, you know. Um, but um, when we got to the actual place where you could look through and you could see where the, the remains of St. Peter were, the shards of bone that are now kept in the uh, acrylic boxes there, um, the... Um, the guide, Julia, asked, said we, we could pray if we wanted to. So we, we knelt down and we prayed the Apostles' Creed, which we've always done on these uh, pilgrimages that I've taken with the students. And, uh, but then the students uh, asked if they could sing, and Julia said, well, that would be fine. And uh, again, we're talking about our 12th and 11th graders. So there was a handful of us, I think a total of 13 of us, actually, including myself. And it was a very confined space. And I thought, well, this is not going to sing well. You know how it is. You go into a closet and you sing, and it's very muffled. It doesn't sound good. Well, they began to sing the uh, uh, Gloria Patri and, and uh, other, uh, another hymn that they, they knew in, uh, in multiple in parts. And uh, it was very beautiful. I was, I was really surprised. You know, it was not a place that gave you any uh, gifts to enhance your singing. There was no powerful resonance as you'd get in a basilica. Yet in that very confined space, with barely enough room, headroom over our head to stand up straight, um, it actually sounded very beautiful. And, um, and the students sang with a great uh, fervor. You know? And um, at the end of their singing, and the, you know, the sound died away, Julia just stood there, stood there stock still for a moment and said, well, let us go. And she turned on her heels like, and let us out. And I thought, well, I don't know if she was very impressed by that or depressed by it or what. She didn't betray, betray anything. Until we actually came to the very end of the, of the tour, which only lasted about 15 minutes more. Um, and she said as we were leaving uh, the gate into the grottos, which is where they let you out, uh, how much that affected her, personally. She said it was really uh, very beautiful, uh, the, the students singing there, and that she stressed it had a great personal effect on her, which is, I think, the way she, why she turned as she did, because I think it, emotionally, I think she was quite, you know, um, just uh, affected by it, and uh, didn't know how to respond, and maybe was a little bit afraid to at that time. But she made it very clear as we were leaving how much of an impression that made on her. And I've seen it uh, before 
when we uh, do, as a group, pray, um, that people do respond to that. They, they, they find that very impressive. Um, this time we, we had uh, the privilege of getting to the Caladarium, the steam room where St. Cecilia herself died. And um, I'd been to Rome, you know, many times and had um, never gotten into that, past that, that metal grating for in, within the Basilica of St. Cecilia, never gotten through that metal grating and around the wall there into the Caladarium where she passed away because it was open, it's only open at some very limited number of days during the year. <clears throat> Um, but the last time I was there, 2018, uh, I actually encountered the lead archaeologist for that basilica, the Basilica of St. Cecilia. Uh, she is la Dottore Neda Palmeciani, and uh, Dr. Palmeciani, being the lead architect there, had a certain influence. And so she not only led us into the crypt, but she, she, let, she not only let us into the crypt, she led us into the crypt. And she herself gave us a personal tour in very rapid Italian, which I could hardly keep up with, to try to translate with the students, which I could do at that time, <laughs> to explain what the excavations revealed. The actual home, the, homes in, uh, the rooms in which St. Cecilia grew up as a child. And, um, of course, the crypt there is very beautiful. But um, but this time I didn't see Dr. Pompajani there, but I saw another lady who uh, uh, actually took us and opened opened up the, the way to the steam room for us. And we were able to get in there, and she just basically left us there. Uh, this was only the second time I'd been past that gate, second time I'd been into the Caledarium. So I consider that to be very special. Uh, maybe the students thought, well, this happens all the time, but it doesn't. <laughs> So we all knelt down, we prayed a decade of the rosary and some other prayers for benefactors who helped us to go to Rome, uh, for our loved ones back here and for those in need. Um, and uh, again, as we were leaving, the, um, uh, the woman who was you know, taking care of the uh, religious good store and so who had actually gave it, given us access, um, commented how impressive it was that there were those who prayed there especially Ijovani, uh, the, young, the youngsters. Very impressed by seeing the young people actually get down on their knees and pray there. So uh, I know that the young pilgrims we had uh, did a lot of good for others too who were able to uh, be edified by their, their example. All part of a pilgrimage, right? Well, that's very beautiful, Father. Thanks for thank you for um, taking everyone over there and leading everyone over there. And well, making, making well, I'm very grateful to our chaperones. They're the they're the ones who are the heavy lifters. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, they're a good example um, by their sleeplessness, <laughs> leading the youngsters around Rome, uh, taking them for gelato and to the Trevi Fountain and all the rest. Uh, they also introduce a lot of the fun involved. Yeah, nice. And uh, the, 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 the students are entitled to a certain amount of fun there too, even in the midst of their devotion and prayer. Nice. Well, for anyone who um, wanted to see some of the pictures, maybe read more about that, we'll uh, hope to have some of that on our website and the um, mm. Academy website as well, so we can link to some of those. Um, we, want, we wanted to mention just real quick too, Father, um, during during your your trip there to Rome during your your pilgrimage uh, last Tuesday, uh, it was April eighteenth. Um, it's kind of ironic. I thought you you mentioned how uh, you know you didn't want to necessarily offer the <clears throat> traditional Latin mass there just because of the the reception it would get. Well, uh, on the last Tuesday, April eighteenth, there was actually a an Anglican uh, service offered um, in St. John Lateran Basilica, uh, no less. Um, um, I really don't even know what to, what to say about this, Father. Apparently it was uh, some kind of mistake, a communication error. They say that this was permitted. This group, I think it was two Anglican bishops who were 
um, assisted by maybe 50 priests, 50 Anglican 50 priests. 50 Anglican clergy. Yeah. Um, I, I believe, and they offered this Anglican service um, right, right in the heart of um, St. Saint, Saint John Lateran. But, uh, Actually on the papal altar, Tom. Yeah, there, there's, there's... Right on the papal altar. There's apparently which deep encloses regret. The part, part of the altar of St. Peter. Yeah. And above which are parts, of the, the, the relics of St. Peter and St. Paul directly overhead in the can, the uh, Baldacchino overhead. Mm -hmm. But they, they say, Father, that there's deep regret over this, that this was some kind of um, communication error. I don't believe error. it. <laughs> you know, this is part of the problem, uh, that there, there is a, <clears throat> uh, there is definitely a, 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 a uh, what should I call it, a, a uh, not just a communication gap, which is what they were talking about, yeah. breakdown of communication, there is a credibility gap that they, they say, oh, this was a big mistake. This was a mistake. Oops, this was a mistake. <laughs> Francis met with these Anglicans the very next day as though he didn't know what happened, that they were using the papal altar at the Lateran, St. John Lateran, the mother and the head of all the Catholic churches throughout the world. Um, this is, we can't believe them. Uh, it's bad enough that they let it happen, but then they, they, they I mean, they lie about it. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the man who was in charge there of, uh, uh, well, this is, this is the statement that was made to uh, explain that it was a mistake and how it happened and like, uh, oops, um, you know, this was a breakdown of communication. This is what he said. The Lateran chapter in the person of His Excellency Bishop Garino di Tora, chapter, chapter vicar, expresses deep regret for what happened last Tuesday, 18 April, inside the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. In fact, a group of about 50 clergymen, accompanied by their bishop, all belonging to the Anglican Communion, celebrated on the high altar of Rome's cathedral in contravention of canonical norms. Monsignor Di Tora also explained that the unfortunate episode was caused by a breakdown in communication. And then it is signed by His Excellency. And this just stretches credulity to the point where it's almost as though they, they are mocking us and giving yeah. us an explanation like that, yeah. which uh, is so meaningless. Um, in fact, we knew something was going on uh, because uh, the last day we were in Rome, which was Wednesday, the last full day we had there. So in other words, the day after this, this sacrilege uh, took place, um, we uh, came to a restaurant, we were going to have lunch there, and uh, we saw there uh, whatever looked like a cardinal. And he was accompanied by a woman with a Roman collar, a clergy shirt. Yeah. A middle-aged woman, I would guess, a clergy shirt. And, um, and one of the kids pointed out, one of the students pointed out, that's strange, you know, this cardinal is there in this restaurant but with this, this woman wearing a clergy shirt. I mean, is this is common in Rome? And I said, no, it isn't common. There's some, probably some ecumenical gathering going on, is what I said. She probably represents some kind of some ecumenical gathering this cardinal is um, chumming up with, you know. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if she was one of those clergy persons, but I don't know that. Um, but it could well have been a part of that. And uh, we had been to the Lateran actually, I think just the day before this took place. Um, it is a sacrilege, it's an outrage, it's profanation. <coughs> the building is profaned. Ordinarily, you'd have to reconcile it, you know. Uh, but they, they've done so many sacrileges there. Uh, they profaned the place so many times over that, uh, you know, even if one were able to reconcile it within 24 hours, it would be profaned again by something. And, you know, they, they issue a, not so much an apology, a deep regret, they say, a deep regret for what happened, okay? The same time they're announcing that an Orthodox Coptic uh, Pope is going to uh, celebrate with the Vatican approval, no mistake here, in the Lateran. Yeah. But, but he's not going to be using the papal altar. That, that makes a difference. And what it makes a difference here also is that 
Uh, he's orthodox, schismatic, but he has, uh, they still maintain the valid priesthood and valid Eucharist. And so that, that makes it okay. Schismatic, you don't have to have the same faith, right? Um, so you're not one in faith, certainly not one in communion, but he's going to have this Orthodox Coptic service in, uh, in St. John Lateran. Whereas with these Anglicans, oh, this was, a, this was a, an oops, a mistake. We shouldn't have let that happen. Um, you know, to give you an idea of just how phony that is, the whole thing, how dishonest it is. Uh, for years they've been saying the Society of St. Pius X is schismatic, right? Uh, well, why would they not, by the same token, have let the Society of St. Pius X bishops, you know, come into the Lateran and offer the traditional liturgy? The reason why they're letting this schismatic Coptic come in is because the Orthodox have a great devotion have a great devotion, and their antiquity and so on, they have a great devotion to the Eucharist. And so in honor of that, we're in partial communion with them, and so we let them come in. But, you know, if you were, a, a, you know, let's say, a bishop of the Society of St. Pius X, they would have never let you come in and offer the traditional Roman rite of Mass there. Um, because you're schismatic, but you're schismatic in a different way than the Coptics. Orthodox are schismatic. You're not, they're, all schismatics are not, you know, are not, not schismatic in exactly the same way. So, I mean, look, you know, you see the, um, the dishonesty in uh, the different rules. They apply and they make it up as they go along, depending on who's in favor and who is not. And um, but what can I say? I you know it's just breathtaking to see this this uh, the level of dishonesty and their disrespect not only for God but for the Catholic people and how they abuse them and abuse their credulity, uh, almost um, treating them uh, as though they were fools, as though they couldn't see through this very, very transparent uh, web of lies that is being handed them in the, in, in, in the new order. Um, but that's what the new order is all about. I mean, when St. Pius X says that the new order is the synthesis of all heresies, the modernis, modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, I and mean, the whole thing is built on a lie anyway. And you always have to lie to protect the, the lie. So that's what they're doing over there now. And uh, you asked how it is going into these basilicas now. I'll tell you, it had, when I walked in there uh, to the ladder and the day, I think it was the day before this happened, if we'd known, um, you know, I, I think it would have been just overwhelmingly sad and I, I know that everyone would have, been, would have been moved to pray more, you know, in reparation to God for this terrible sacrilege. In fact, we might have been there, if we'd known it was taking place, we might have been there to denounce it. Mm-hmm. Father, you, you mentioned the uh, SSPX. Apparently, um, some are saying that Francis actually said that the SSPX are not schismatic. Is that true? Well, according to this Bishop Huander, I think H-U-O-N-D-E-R, a Swiss bishop, uh, who is now living with them, uh, the SSPX, I think in one of their school facilities, um, and who, by the way, recently... Um, had the chrism mass for them, and he's Novus Ordo. He's Novus Ordo consecrated. I mean, he's a consecrated in the Novus Ordo right. He was even uh, ordained in the Novus Ordo. He was ordained in the Novus Ordo right, as far as I know, right? Yeah. And, which is very obviously very problematic, and even some of the SSPX people are finding it. They still understand enough to realize this is problematic. This is a bit of a problem here. How do we justify this? Because they wouldn't want a priest ordained in the Novus Ordo to be serving them. You know, there are many still SSPX people who are very much uh, aware of the problems with the new right of ordination and find it very suspicious and doubtful and would not want a priest ordained in the Novus Ordo Rite and only that, and not con- at least conditionally ordained in the traditional rite. They wouldn't want that priest, uh, uh, you know, offering Mass and administering the sacraments in their chapels. But here they have a bishop, who's a Novus Ordo bishop, 
and he's thinking more and more like a traditional Catholic bishop, I understand, that's what I'm told, but he was ordained and consecrated in the new rites of the modernists, uh, post-Vatican II. Um, and, you know, if, if you have a, an SSPXer who says, well, I certainly wouldn't want a Novus Ordo priest coming with his Novus Ordo ordination to my church and just taking that for granted that it's okay, because it's not okay. But they have here a bishop ordained and consecrated in the Novus Ordo who is actually consecrating the holy oils for them upon which the validity of the sacrament of, let's say, extreme unction depends, right? Um, and what kind of a crisis would that cause for anyone in the SSPX who is aware of the problems with the new rite of ordination and consecration? So, but this is part of the problem. I mean, you can't mix the Novus Ordo and the traditional without sacrilege. Uh, people are trying this. They're trying to be traditional Catholic within within the Novus Ordo, or they're trying to be Novus Ordo within the traditional, you know, as when the Novus Ordo people come into the SSPX. <coughs> you cannot mix them without sacrilege. Inevitably, there are going to be problems. And uh, this is something we've been warning about all this time. Uh, if, as St. Pius X says, uh, that modernism is a synthesis of all, of all heresies, then what makes anyone think that we can sort of blend them, mix them, um, can celebrate with them, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, and and just pretend that they're equivalent or compatible? Even it doesn't make sense. Um, so there's obviously, to say the least, poor judgment going going on here. And you know, if I were as I was, you know, uh, with Society of St. Pius X, I would be very, very concerned about the direction they're taking and uh, the decisions they're making with regard to the, the order. But you're right, Francis has, according to this Bishop Juander, has said that, has told him that the SSPX uh, is not schismatic. Which means, I mean, if that is reliable, I don't know that uh, how many others have heard this directly from Francis, but he says he's heard it directly from Francis. If they are really in full communion, not just partial communion like other schismatics, but uh, in full communion with the Novus Ordo, if now even Francis is saying that, that would be rather alarming. But uh, leaders in the SSPX have talked about how Francis has actually favored them in various ways. And uh, they find that very comforting and encouraging. I find it rather alarming again, because, I mean, look at, look at what Francis is, is doing, uh, bringing pagan idols yeah. into St. Peter's Basilica itself, into Santa Maria and Transmontina, uh, from which they were taken and thrown into the Tiber. Um, you know, he's, he's colluding in this Mayan rite of liturgy, you know, to replace the Mass. Um, I mean, he's involved in all these things. I mean, essentially you have, well, I mean, I don't think it would be an exaggeration. I think you could make a case for saying you have a pagan pope. Essentially you have a pagan pope who sees the, um, actually in pagan rituals and rites, something of the divine. You know, this is his concept of God. And how they can, uh, you know, say this is a good thing. You know, we, we've got to stay on his good side and, 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 and you know, curry his favor. You know? um, I, I, I just don't understand the thinking there. In any case, I guess it all gets back to answering your question originally, Tom. How do you feel when you go and, and you visit these holy places? You feel like you're there to make reparation to God and to implore his mercy. Uh, and we do. And yes, on Francis too. You know, on all those who are following the new order, we ask God to have mercy on them. I mean, we're praying like the, the bidding prayers, the bidding prayers uh, on, on Good Friday, we're just asking God to have mercy on, on everyone and, and please get us out of this, this darkness right now. Um, and we have confidence that uh, the, the church will, the church is immortal.
I mean, you know, we look at the status of our country today. We worry for the survival of our country. We don't worry for the survival of the church, because the church, I mean, is, a, is, is the mystical body of Christ. And our Lord said, I've been with you all days, even at the consummation of the world. So we have that guarantee of Christ, the church cannot be put to death. Um, but we also know that the church will, uh, as it were, parallel in her own existence the life of Christ and the death of Christ. And in the eyes of the world, will appear to be, have, to be to have been destroyed, put to death, murdered, martyred. And uh, the church itself will undergo a, experience a glorious resurrection. We know that will happen. We have absolute confidence in that. Um, there's our faith. And uh, for those who, uh, who lose heart because of what's going on, uh, well, we, we need to pray for them because their faith is not strong enough. But for those who are traditional Catholics right now, we are traditional Catholics because we firmly believe that the church itself is immortal as Jesus Christ himself is immortal and that Christ's promise is fulfilled day by day and will ultimately be fulfilled no matter what the world or the powers of hell do to the church any more than what they've done to our Lord. Uh, that the church will, uh, will just flourish in a, in a glorious resurrection. We know that will happen. We have absolute confidence in that, in that word of Christ. Absolutely. Well, Father, thank you for everything. It's great to have you back again. Well, thank you, Tom. It's good to be back. Yes. Yes. Thanks for holding down the fort. <laughs> well, thank you again, Father, and thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.